Hey, welcome to the Post Game Podcast. Jeff Eisenband here. I have not podcast much um, recently, but I want to get these two up. The first, well, really one podcast, but in two parts. The first part is Peter Fagan, president for the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, he was in New York in December, and we put this out on video. Uh, the full clip is on YouTube. We cut it up, and we put in a bunch of different uh, videos on social. It's also an article, and people have wanted to hear this, kind of sit through it, I guess, in podcast form. Um, I talked to Peter about, you know, uh, marketing Giannis Antetokounmpo. Um, I think I said that right. Um, also, just marketing a new arena in Milwaukee. Uh, esports, Milwaukee has bought in. Obviously, Wes Eaton's and Mark Lazary have some connections in the tech field. Um, we talked about Jason Kidd, and there's still a part in here about Jason Kidd because of the time he was still the Bucks coach. Uh, I should point out, Peter does not make the basketball operations decisions, but he did rave about Jason Kidd leading this, uh, I believe he called them a freshman team, that he didn't realize he was buying in to a freshman basketball team and, and building them up, but obviously that was cut short. So that'll be the first part. We'll be with Peter Fagan. Um, again, it is video that has been turned into audio. And then the second part is a, an interview I did during a while back at the 100 Days Out uh, of this, this year's Winter Olympics with Ted Ligeti, um, the skier for Team USA. He's in his fourth Olympics now, has two gold medals, suffered arguably his worst year in 2017 uh, due to injury, but has bounced back in, at this Olympics right now in Pyeongchang. Uh, looking for a chance, you know, hopefully not his last Olympics, but if it is looking for one last hurrah on the medal stand, one of the most recognizable faces on Team USA. And if you want to know more about his backstory beyond just what you see during the Olympics, uh, check out that second half of this interview. So again, Peter Fagan coming up first. I'll have a break and then it'll be Ted Liggett. Hey, welcome to the post game. Jeff Eisenband here with president of the one-time NBA champion, Milwaukee Bucks, Peter Fagan. Maybe maybe it'll be more than that, you know, before the end of this season or the end of the next few seasons. Certainly before the end of my career, that's for <laughs> sure. Um, and this is now your fourth season with the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, just some background on you. You worked for the Madison Square Garden Company, Six Flags, Marquee Jet, Net Jets, Advantage, among other jobs. Um, a lot of them based in New York. You're a New York guy. So how do you end up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the NBA? Pretty simply. So for uh, I happen to have an identical twin brother who is who's still the head doing of, all those jobs. Still doing all, who's doing those jobs at the same time. No, actually, he took the five hundred one c three path and uh, and runs a school called Trevor Day School mm -hmm. in New York City. And yep. lo and behold, all of Mark Lazary and all of Wes Eden's kids went to Trevor Day School. And when they started to explore acquiring a team, uh, Mark came to talk to me and said, "Hey, why don't you?" come and uh, on my brother's suggestion because my brother wants 50% of all the revenue that's been uh, gathered since why don't you come with us to to Milwaukee and do some due diligence with the team and I'm really kind of my background on the sales and marketing and operations side was kind of that key um, quarterback kind of on that team so as we went through the due diligence period I really kind of represented Mark and Wes had somebody um, representing him and as we got further along one of my jobs was to staff up the operation and really have a business plan so I did kind of the Dick Cheney I, I suggested a lot of people who would who would be great presidents and lo and behold none of them worked out to uh, to do it so I think they had to default to me to uh, to run the company this is why you go to the parents night right yes. at, at school <laughs> so you can meet these guys that's right how do you network in, in New York City private schools you go you go to parents night but then you end up going to Milwaukee I mean, as a New Yorker, you know, working as a business executive now in Milwaukee, what do you notice that's just different about the culture and the, and the vibe you're trying to market? Well, I'll tell you the biggest, and, and maybe this analogy makes sense and maybe it doesn't make sense. You will be in a business meeting on Monday with one of the three to 500 business executives in the town, and you will see them somewhere, someplace mm. later that week or the week after, unlike in New York City. You know, so there is an equity portion of a relationship, a trust, a relationship, and, and really kind of, you know, a long-term kind of thinking when you're dealing with people. So, 
it really was for us, like on the relationship and interpersonal side, we had to attack the business like one-on-one, you know, blocking and tackling, build equity, build trust, engage, uh, which is a lot different than you might do in other markets. So you show up in 2014. What team are you working with right here? What are you looking at? Um, you know, it'd been a struggle for the franchise for the better part of a decade. What do you What do you come across when you open the book and see what the team looks like on paper? Well, I think you're coming across what a lot of NBA teams have come across. You know, that they've kind of been owned by you know, um, by families, by by smaller individuals and not really embraced kind of this world's organization process and kind of growth strategy. So we saw a company with probably a little bit over 80 employees, probably infrastructure really around basketball and to get the lights on in the arena and probably a little little less um, advanced on fan acquisition, on retention, on digital engagement, on media strategy, and really brand strategy and, and like how to grow a business and how to grow a brand. So we had this unbelievable opportunity to really take this team, a 50-year-old team that had won an NBA championship, that had had guys like Oscar Robinson and Kareem and Ray Allen and Michael Red with an unbelievable heritage and almost rip it down to the studs and like build up, build it up as a startup. But they did have good arena cheese. I'm, I'm assuming when you got there, cheese and beer. There's cheese no question. Like you cannot refine, in, improve the current cheese and beer. If you touched it, you you knew you were the in the wrong job. And so I mean, you show up. It is you know a guy got there a year before you, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Which yes. I don't know if I botched the pronunciation. No, I, I give that a B plus, A minus. <laughs> if you get the, it you know it's polysyllabic, so it's tough. But you did the two two, which is key. I'm just sure yes. you looked in the mirror and recited it a million times before you met him. In I've said it a lot of times. I've coached announcers on it a lot of times. I think people are finally getting it. And we know the reality of 18 months ago, nobody would have said Giannis was one of the five best players in the NBA uh, to go. So we've had like really what we call the Giannis effect. So very simply, we did what you think you did. We, we went into the market and said, hey, we're going to build this market. We're going to build it locally, regionally, nationally, and then internationally. And then we're going to be the number one team in the league. You know, to to be the band, brand representation, because that's how you that's how you think when you do it. All of a sudden, 12 months ago, that went on that went upside down, and with Giannis, it literally went international, national, regional, you know, local, which is a great um, turnaround for us. But there's no way even us that are so close to it thought 18 months ago we'd have this type of Giannis effect. Yeah, I think there's two sides to this marketing Giannis. One internally, uh, you know. A giant, lengthy, lanky kid from Greece all of a sudden is living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which had to have been, I know you got there his second year, has to be a bit of culture shock for a guy. But then back, because you have this international player, you're able to market around the world. So what's that whole experience been like, incorporating him internally into the city and then externally to all of the world, especially Europe? Well, it's great because we'd love to take a lot of credit for it. Giannis, though, is a guy who's publicly said he wants to live in Milwaukee for 20 years. He brought his family there. He lives there year round. He's got his brothers and his parents, you know, there from the start, which is just incredible. So he's built that local culture. He's embraced it, which is unbelievable leverage when you're positioning a city like Milwaukee to other people. You know, here are the best resources. By the way, there are no more small markets in the NBA when you're when you have a superstar. So how do you take all those great attributes like a great city, easy to live in, unbelievable resources and training center and then kind of family oriented and Giannis is the poster child, you know, to get that done. And then internationally, you know, it, it's it, it, the growth it, the growth is insurmountable. Like you can't imagine we are just literally scraping the surface of, of what this can come because of course you've got Greece, but really Asia is mesmerized by by Giannis and how do we capture that both digitally on broadcast how do we think about marketing you know around the world yeah do you know do you have any I don't know maybe good stories about a fan from God knows what country you know inquiring about I want to be a Milwaukee Bucks fan how can I get merchandise how can I you know are you sensing that around the world every day I mean I think that the most incredible aspect is here's a guy who now we have to monitor and figure out and organize the groups that travel from Greece to away games and have meet and greets after the game, which, by the way, aren't scheduled. They just have to be huge group buys of 200, 300 people with the Greek flags behind the visiting bench like the Bucks at away games. I mean, that's kind of a surreal experience in in an NBA arena. So we're about to go see the arena. We're about to take a tour. 
here with my my guy and boss Peter Figgin. Uh, it's gonna be fun. This will be fun. You're gonna be blown away. This is gonna be fun. Good for Giannis. He gets a new house next year. Uh, you guys have a new arena coming in. No name yet, but I know you've been inside walking around with a hard hat. What can you tell us about what we're looking at there? I think state of the art, you know, which which for us is of course think of everything from like the experience of the fans. So it's going to be a blow away experience beyond expectations for anybody who's been to a pro sporting event in the state of Wisconsin. That's for sure. And then we really want it to be a model for around the world. So we've had like the last two years to take best practices from so many great arenas, whether it's Barclays, Orlando, Sacramento, which just opened up like last year, and really work with the league in like a great way to really experience it. We've made it intimate with 17,500 uh, crowd. We've made it really authentic and localized with what our food and beverage offerings are gonna be. And it's really best of class. So you know, this is one of these places we want to be a magnet around the world and not just basketball we'll have of course we'll have our 50 games when we win an nba championship but we'll have another 150 events that are the world's greatest concerts and family shows and events which we're really excited to bring to yeah. wisconsin i mean how you know you would expect this to be a decades-long arena when you're building it you know so how do you set that standard that this is still going to look innovative in say 30 years from now well, we, we've kind of blended it into into the skyline. So this is not a spaceship. You know, you can't build a spaceship in the middle of downtown Milwaukee. It's got such an incredible, authentic architecture. It's really got to bleed in. If you've seen the designs, we've used a patina zinc and kind of a sloping roof to really give it a unique, unbelievable feel. And it and it's completely contrasted by transparency. So they're huge glass walls that you kind of look in and look out and. Uh, and so, so it's kind of one of those wow buildings without being a spaceship is how I explain it to my mother, you know, <laughs> to, uh, to go around. So it is one of those special kind of blend in but unique buildings that will last a lifetime. I would just call it right now, you know, the Wisconsin events, sports, <laughs> multi whatever it is right now. Um, we know you've publicly said that you're looking for a deal of seven to 10 million over 20 years per year, seven to 10 million from a sponsor. I mean, I'm looking around, BMO Harris Bank is the current sponsor of the old arena, that's a bank. Harley Davidson is the Jersey sponsor. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of ways to go with this, and I know you guys are expecting an announcement in early 2018, uh, but you, one thing that you've said that's you know, interesting to me is that you're not looking necessarily for a localized brand. You know, you might be looking for an international brand to sponsor this new arena. So what's that process been like? Well, you know better than anybody that, you know, this game is so global. And mm -hmm. it's the difference between hockey, football, baseball. It's kind of where the growth curve is of NBA. So we have this value proposition that is so different that when you buy into and partner with an NBA team, you've got an international platform. So, so logic is you go to a bigger, you know, uh, swatch of land of, of potential prospects for naming rights and even if you have a localized company you would pretty much have to assume they have they have global aspirations or they have a global presence to really leverage kind of where our media is you know today the NBA is broadcasting 215 countries around the world you know all of our games are, are doing just the awareness the impressions and everything so for us we we went out international and globally to begin with. That's not to say, hey, we won't end up with a global company in the Midwest that, that will do it. But we think it's one of those opportunities. It's one of 30 teams. It's the only one out in the market now. And people, especially media and brand people, are understanding what the value proposition of, of entitling an NBA arena is. Now, I went to a school, college at a far-off land called Evanston, Illinois. I've heard of Northwestern. <laughs> which yeah. is uh, in the, you know, a stone's throw away from Milwaukee. And I was, when I was there, I thought to myself, if traffic is bad in Chicago, which it tends to be, um, could I get to Milwaukee before I could get to the southwest suburbs of Chicago, or not so southwest side of Chicago where the United Center is? Now, maybe Evanston is too far south, but how are you guys trying to market maybe into Illinois for this new arena? Well, just look at population base. I mean, take, we'll, we'll leave Evanston, take Lake Forest, right? Mm. It's a coin flip, you know, to downtown Chicago, to downtown Milwaukee. So how do you really leverage, and if you're creating that magnet for sports entertainment, and you're looking at population base, how do you not go to Northern Illinois, 
go to southeastern Wisconsin to really grab those folks and kind of give them a new experience. So we think certainly on the basketball side, there's an opportunity and even greater opportunity on the entertainment side and what we're creating as ease of use. You know, like Milwaukee is not the huge metropolitan city that Chicago is. So to get people from Northern Illinois to drive into Milwaukee is not that tough of a thing to do. And, and, and we will position kind of that ease of use to get it to get them there. My one Milwaukee Bucks experience was I went to game four, the first round against the Bulls, the Bucks down 3-0 in the series, and Jared Bayless hit Jared, a game-winning layup. Jared, Bays, Jared Bayless, I remember that. Quick steal, quick quick, quick layup. And, it, he's, and now at Philly, doing, doing fine. Yeah, no, those are, first of all, if you can pit Chicago-Milwaukee, because it really is one of the rare competitions mm. we've been trying to manufacture a Minnesota trying to, but Chicago's it, you know, and I think Chicago experiences it. We see it when the Brewers play the clubs, you know, it kind of comes in. So, so those teams pitted together are great for both of us. Which like, that was, we love it. I mean, the Brewers moved leagues, so that was a competition that developed. They would have had the White Sox okay. in the American League. Also, the scoreboard. This seems to be the new in arenas. This is the standard. You know, you have the Falcons one upping the Cowboys. Um, and now when we go to the NBA, what are we looking at uh, for your guys' new video board? You're looking at the sharpest aspect ratio you've ever seen. So, you know, it again goes to the next level of people are literally looking at, you know, it looks like a high-def television in your in your living room, and you're now looking at it from, from an arena, you know, point of view. And I think all the, all the great aspects, and, and for us, we dug so deep into it. So think of the undercarriage of the arena and how you're able to look at stats you know, from the first six rows, like what's the aspect ratio and the sight lines, you know, from the suites to get it done. It's important. It is in our arena, it, it's going to be to scale. It's not going to be one of these monstrosities that kind of go from baseline to baseline, mm -hmm. but it will be blow away kind of fun and exciting and kind of what you can do now with, with graphics, what you can do with animation and, and how you can link it in to second screen when people are, you know, in the arena with their phones, it's kind of that next generation. So it'll be fun. When, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, yes, that second screen is, I remember the first time they ever put, you know, you could, you could text to a scoreboard. I mean, that actually brings up a good point about fan engagement. Um, you know, what are you guys working for in arena, outside arena, in terms of digital in the future? Well, digital is kind of like what we own. It's our content, it's our distribution. We're a small market, but we're like within the top five of the NBA in engagement per thousand. We are like so heavy on kind of really attractive, great content. It helps to have, you know, Giannis videos getting millions of millions of hit. But digital is, you know, by no mistake, and, and you know it from what you do for a living, it's the real-time engagement, you know, in the voice, you know, in dialogue with the fans. So we think we're not even scratching the surface of what digital becomes. And the truth is our digital channels, you know, are 10x like what our local broadcasts are in Fox Sports. So it's interesting to explain that to people. You know, we do more during the week b between games than actually the game broadcast, you know, on a local basis. So how do you leverage that? How do you make it exciting? How do you create the Bucks and other NBA teams as a lifestyle, you know, brand and, and make it attractive that you're sticky with all these folks like throughout a 12 month period? When you're watching a game, I don't know if you go to every game you're watching at home, how are you in taking that content? Are you, do you have Twitter up? Do you have social media? I do not have I do not have Twitter up. I probably have I, I probably watch it on a, on a large screen if it's a road game, and have uh, have NBA.com or League Pass on at the same time just to see other games going. I'm not a good guy to watch a game with. You know, you're I like just, a scout. It sounds like. Yeah, I had like several people over for dinner like the other night to watch a road game. You know, against New Orleans, and it was uh, I wish I hadn't had them over for dinner. You know, you just want to you want to be angry when you're losing by yourself. You want to be Doing it, but it's it's an interesting position because you you really have to game face, mm -hmm. um, especially at home games, kind of where it's going. But it is a long marathon, you know, eighty two games, you know, in a season. There's so many ups and downs, and we have a very young, young team. So uh, I think it kind of makes it the greatest job in the world because I'm a basketball fan. I can't believe I get paid to to watch NBA games to a certain degree. So. It's kind of fantasy driven as well. Oh, that's nice. And yeah. you know, you spent eighty-two games. You get the playoffs, and now you might even have more to watch. Bucks gaming, um, esports is now. You guys have an esports team 
Um, what do you ex- are you, are you a, an esports guy? Are you going to be watching these games? I'm not. I, I have a 14 year old boy who who can basically tell me every single player in the NBA as well as the G League. Tell me what Europeans are playing, what YouTube channels are in high school, all through NBA 2K. Oh, so yeah. Basically, you know, to to get it done, he plays the Bucks 95 percent of the time. So it's fun to watch John Horse. You seen that, or he tells you? Oh that. no, no, I see it. I watch it, which is like, which is an interesting stat because all of us, you know, kind of between the ages of forty and fifty-five, all have kids mm-hmm. who play and rationalize like now what this is because it used to be five, ten years ago the parents didn't know what was going on, and now this is real. So we've been explaining NBA Two K. It's almost like the digital instantaneously overnight. We have 30 million people playing NBA 2K around the world, probably more. So we begin a league and, and we have competition on a global basis. This again becomes a platform of an NBA brand extension that just explodes with, uh, with engagement, with real engagement. You know, and I have to explain, you know, to, I explain to my mother, well, you don't get it. Like, wh- wh- why would anybody watch this? And I'm like, oh, everybody would watch it because it's a competition. And those who play it recreationally want to be professionals. So how do they watch best practices and go nuts? So we think NBA 2K League is going to be just beyond expectations and really explode over the next two years. It's why we opted in. Yeah, I mean, when did you know, just maybe before you were even president of the Bucks, while you were, that you know this is a big deal, this video game. This isn't just something that people do as a hobby. This is big for our sport. I probably remember four or five years ago in South Korea, there was a League of Legends, you know, streaming mm-hmm, broadcast mm-hmm. that somebody had said, or maybe it came over the ticker, as had like an audience of 27 million or 30 million, and I thought it was a mistake. You know, and I just, it was one of the things you had to click through to, to see it. And I think what, that moment, and the moment that the Garden probably had a tournament like three years yeah. ago, and, and kind of, and I've been to, I've been to three or four events now, so I always tell people, if you don't believe it, like go, it's UFC, you know, it's like boxing. If people have never experienced it, go, like mm-hmm. go mm-hmm. see this culture, go into it, see how ridiculous, you know, and, and viral and passionate like this fan base is, you know, same kind of group. Everybody's buying apparel, they're buying food, they don't want to leave, you know, and in these, on, on, in these gaming tournaments, you know, it's a six, 10 hour event. You know, at it. So, so I got very excited. Those are all like in the sports entertainment kind of retailing business. I mean, that's gold. You know, that exists. Yeah, I mean, we got to get you playing more first of all. But uh, you you said you guys opted in. Seventeen teams opted in. Um, there are obviously thirty NBA teams. I know Mark Cuban had said, "Oh, I'm going to buy everyone who doesn't make a team." He didn't do that. But why wouldn't teams opt in? And and was there ever a conversation of why we shouldn't do this? I think it happened pretty quickly, mm-hmm. you know, like on the administrative side. So it was really one of those choices. I mean, all teams have lots of things going on, you know, kind of all the time. And I think it's where the awareness is kind of on the digital side. So you really had to make a commitment. We had a distinct advantage in Wes Edens, you know, who's one of our owners, happened to be on the Board of Governors Committee of, you know, for, for e-gaming. You know, so we kind of had the inside, you know, uh, knowledge of where this was going and kind of the timing of it and prepared a little bit. But I think year one was, you know, you had to opt in like a little bit risky and not knowing what, what this would be and kind of the timing and everything else. And there was a there's a monetary commitment, you know, there's a staffing commitment, there's an execution. I mean, we will, you know, we'll have an infrastructure of 10 people in a company of e-gaming and five or six of those people we've got, we house, we train, you know, we manage. So it's building a team and for us, we just opened up a G League team this fall too, so we are, you know, kind of rolling very quickly. You're gonna be like Team Dad of uh, Bucks, ga- <laughs> Bucks right. Gaming, coming down, nourishing the, this team, and and which I assume obviously it will be. You got to wire this new video board to NBA 2K, so fans and people can come in and just, you, or you can just play in your. In well, your free for time. us, like we think it's a little bit bigger, and it, again, it's like local, but we're building like a 30-acre neighborhood, you know, and, mm-hmm. and some of that is a plaza where we've got where we've got entertainment and retail areas and like we're certainly going to build gaming lounges so we are certainly going to entice people that i think i think you know 
our ownership and kind of directionally. I mean, we think the new sports bar is certainly about watching games, certainly about, you know, watching soccer, you know, on Saturdays and football on Sundays and basketball every day. But we also think it's going to niche out and, and have an e-gaming portion of it. So how do you design those kind of areas to do it and to promote, you know, specifically our brands? And one thing you can't, you can't build a new arena and you can't build this new mini community without talking to politicians about it. Um, so what were your, what was your experience dealing with, um, you know, certain Wisconsin politicians, Scott Walker um, being one in particular, uh, in terms of getting everything done? So we didn't have much time and we had to build a new arena or we we're going to move the team. Mm -hmm. You know, that was that's kind not of, good. That was that was like the value proposition, you know, to get it done. So and we had an interesting thing in the state of Wisconsin. When you're in the city of Milwaukee, you actually deal with the state, you deal with the county and you deal with the city on all different levels. So for us, which were very polarized at the time, you know, on both sides of the aisle and uh, and, and we were time wise like, kind of lucky. I mean, Scott Walker was just at the beginning of a presidential campaign. He wanted to he wanted to keep the team in it, which was like a big catalyst to for the whole movement. So we um, we had legislation passed outside of a state budget, which is another challenge to uh, to get done. We were able to purchase um, a swatch of twenty acres from the from the county to kind of make it complete, and signed a development deal with the city to actually be able to build on that. And, uh, you know, I explained it as our distinct advantage was um, I had no idea, no skeletons, no history, no nothing in state, you know, county or city government. So probably that helped um, in, in just staying focused, giving our narrative and selling through the proposition of like this has to happen. Here's the economic development uh, side of the win when this does happen on a state and local side uh, to get it done. But it was a, uh, I, I, I can't even complain about it because for us, it was a 10-month process. And I think, you know, you've been around public-private financing of arenas. Some of them are 10 years. That's why I'm surprised it, it worked so quickly. You mentioned not having skeletons. I'm going to paraphrase here. You've been quoted as saying that Milwaukee was the most racist and segregated place that you've lived. Um, did that create any skeletons in terms of, or, or how have you been being so... Being so open, how has that helped you deal with politicians and other people in the community? Well, I think like we've been very straightforward and transparent, you know, and I think, you know, those comments go around with like the recognition as an organization where, you know, we are very cognizant of these issues are everywhere, mm -hmm. you know, in every city, in every place, you know, you deal with, there are segregation issues, there are, are certainly race issues, gender issues, and for us, it's how we can affect change in our local area and you know I think what we have the distinct advantage of as an NBA team is we happen to be the greatest melting pot in the history of the world in our physical arena you know and, and our players have to be unbelievable catalysts of change and social awareness and how do we leverage that you know in a really positive way. Yeah you were very vocal after John Henson had a profiling incident um, you know, how have you communicated different things to the players about, you know, defending them in instances such as that? So it's really tough. I mean, I'm not Jason, who's their coach, or John mm -hmm. Horse, who's their GM. You know, I, I feel kind of paternal because these guys are so young. Mm -hmm. And, like, we really feel that, you know, from day one, we're going to lay down, like, the foundation of, like, real direct communication and one-on-one -on -one resourcing. So, you know, for us, it's having a close enough re relationship where directly we can talk like right away. You know, in today's world of pro athletes, you know, if you have the ability to, much like if you had a teenage kid or someone in their young 20s to actually count to 10, breathe, talk about it, and think about what a reaction would be versus getting on Twitter, you know, versus Snapchatting, you know, what your impulsive reaction is, that's like a big difference. And that's just a kind of analogy to the way we really handle this. Like we want to be smart about how we handle it as individuals, how we handle it as an organization, and make everything kind of a teaching lesson, you know, for our guys, because it's much more than just having them as hired guns and players. Like, we think the more we can engage and integrate and be resources to them, the, you know, the, the more equity we have with them to stay with us forever. You mentioned Jason Kidd, um, someone who did not have a history with the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, had played in cities such as New York, Dallas, big cities, has made a ton of money playing the sport of basketball. Why has he bought in to, you know, starting this, this with this young team, building from the ground up with it? 
Well, I think I think Jason, you know, opted in to be, you know, a freshman teacher, you know, and I don't know if he knew like what it was and like where his patients were, but I think uh, he probably is like the, the, the most underappreciated coach, even though we've kind of been around 500, you know, with this young team ever, you know, this is the guy who put Giannis at point guard, mm -hmm. you know, at a, at a time where Giannis really wasn't like the ball handling, you know, point guard, but kind of had that vision, you know, who, who kind of, you know, stuck with Chris Middleton and, you know, kind of, kind of move the core of where we have, where we have it. But, uh, you know, Jason's day-to-day -day, uh, existence is patience, which is very tough for a Hall of Fame, you know, top 10 guy to ever play and didn't really need patience, you know, probably before he got to Cal, was ready to run, you know, an organization on the floor and get it done. So he has systematically built an infrastructure, you know, for growth and to have a core group of players to build around. And Giannis, making Giannis a point guard essentially, you know, deflates the old school point guard that he made his living on by changing this to, you know, but he's recognizing, I guess, the innovation of basketball nowadays. Totally is. I mean, he has that foresight. I mean, he's, he's one of those anomalies. He's a basketball genius. You know, I almost like can't talk basketball with him because I feel embarrassed because I know he's at a different level. You know, why am I talking to Jason Kidd about vision or kind of who's who's flopping up front or high post lift? I mean, Jason's forgotten more, you know, than than I'll ever know on, on that expert scale. But he is a phenomenal teacher. You know, I don't know if he even knew what a great teacher he is in, in getting it. I wish, you know, if he had a magic wand, he'd probably give a couple of years of age to every one of our players just to get to the next mm -hmm. level faster. But uh, he has systematically kind of built and educated this team. Uh, you being president of an organization, is there another president or executive that you've looked to as a mentor or someone who you really admire what they do? I think they're unbelievable professionals, like in all different pockets. So I'm a big best practices guy. Like the way we looked at arenas, I kind of grab certain elements of all the arenas. I think, you know, there, there's not a better business acumen guy than Scott O'Neill in Philadelphia and kind of the way he thinks and builds. I don't think there's a better professional in the world than Rick Welts, you know, in Golden State, who kind of like with a calm, cool demeanor really is a sophisticated business acumen growth kind of guy to uh, get it done. I've had unbelievable uh, advantage to, before Arn Tellum was, you know, his, his executive chairman to, to know Arn when he was an agent. Now, no Arn, you know, is running the Detroit Pistons has been really, uh, really a distinct advantage. And then, you know, just friendships. I don't know if you could put a value on being able to lift up the phone and call the Fred Whitfields of the world in Charlotte and just say, am I crazy? <laughs> you know, what have you done? But but that's the difference of the NBA, and we can never discount. You know, the NBA is a collaborative. You know, David Stern, Adam Silver after him. I mean, this is truly a collaborative. This is truly best practices. This is truly resourcing. Uh, we compete with each other uh, on the court, but really, like, locally, we don't really compete with each other, so we can grab best practices and experiences and save time, you know, have an accelerator on kind of what return is. So that, that's what I think the big difference and the advantage of, like, the way the league is structured in the NBA. Well, as I'm thinking, a former Buck, Brandon Jennings, was with the Knicks recently, and someone went to, one of his teammates went to pick someone up, and he pulled him away. You know, they're the enemy. Let them get up. But it sounds like you guys at least are able to pick each other's brains in this league. Not a question. I mean, I will tell you the generosity of, of the Chris Granger, who's now in Detroit but was in Sacramento and really led the building of the Sacramento Arena. I mean, literally selfless. I mean, you know, uh, Charlie down in, in, in Orlando and uh, and uh, and Brett Yermark in Brooklyn. I mean, complete selflessness. Like, any questions, any times, how do we save each other time? How do we understand, you know, building? I think people, you know, when we look at these jobs, these jobs aren't just running an operation. You know, these jobs become, you know, facilities bound. They become experiential, marketing, media, you know, experts, uh, building and development experts. It's so it's this complex job that if anybody tells you they could master, you know, on their own, I guarantee you they'd be lying. So how do you really gather all these resources? No, you have a lot of responsibilities. I think people are just going to, they'll think about that arena, you know, right. it's going to be the front facing thing for you. But also we have right here, we got, this is the, the 50th anniversary of the Bucks. Got a nice little book here. Um, so what have you guys been doing to celebrate that this year? So we took 12 months 
and just said, how do we encapsulate kind of the heritage? It's an unbelievable spring, springboard and timing into the new arena. And, and we really wanted to, over the last three years, have just been trying to grab everybody within the fabric of, of the Bucks history. So how do we grab all of our alumni? How do we celebrate in games? How do we have heritage nights? We had a game at the Mecca, which, I which was just kind of one of the surreal, great, unbelievable ideas that uh, went uh, to execution on like a national platform. So, so for us, like which we've always said, we've been kind of talking about embracing the past um, and kind of pushing towards the future. But, but these physical assets, these games, these engagements with the relationships, like with our former players and coaches, that is like literally the way we're do, you know get to do it on a 50th year anniversary yeah what's this guy like cream probably the most thoughtful engaging guy who's now like realized how the, the entire state of wisconsin loves him and adores him and comes back regularly and engages with us which is which is just truly like a blessing which he's a kid from brooklyn from new york Power memorial who's adopted yeah. milwaukee wisconsin uh, Peter, uh, are there any topics just before I let you go today um, that you have on the tip of your tongue about being president of an organization like the Milwaukee Bucks that you'd like to talk about? No, I think it's time for the entire country to just embrace the Bucks as their go-to team. You know, get on before it becomes a bandwagon experience. Uh, we, uh, we're having a lot of fun. We've got a kid who will be the next 10 years of this league, and we're going to surround him with uh, championship caliber team around him. If embrace the Bucks is the 2018-2019 slogan, <laughs> I expect some royalties on that. Peter Fagan here on the post game with me, Jeff Eisenband. All right, guys, this is part two. This is with Ted Ligety, who is talking to the post game on behalf of Smuckers. Again, this was, I'll admit, a while out. It was at about the 100 days out from the Olympics, but we tried to keep it, uh, you know, not necessarily immediately timely. We tried to time it with the Olympics. Uh, so Ted Ligety coming up right now. Jeff Eisenman here with Ted Ligety of the U.S. Olympic team, of the ski team, a two-time Olympic gold medalist here in New York. Is that weird for Winter Olympians? You guys come through New York. There are, there are no mountains here right now. <laughs> um, it's a little bit weird coming through here, especially now that it's, uh, it's the start of our season already. So we're you know in between mountain training camps right now. So um, it's always fun to be through New York for a couple of days, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you, you've done this sort of tour before. Yeah. Um, what sort of jitters do you start getting when, when you know, the, the 100 days out is tomorrow? Yeah. Uh, what starts going through your head when the Olympics are now for real? Yeah, when it's an Olympic season, there's a lot more going on for sure than generally just for our World Cup season. Um, you know, a lot more media and press, a lot more sponsorship stuff. Um, that's one of the things I'm doing today is with, uh, with uh, Smuckers. So, you know, it's, it's fun doing these, uh, these sponsor events and, and doing these extra media things. It's, uh, it's cool to bring, you know, a larger light to our sport. And let's go into the one thing that, you know, is going to be a storyline for you. Two injuries in the last, I guess, what we say, two years. Yep. Uh, a torn ACL. Yep. And then back surgery. Yep. How are you sitting here right now? This is actually the first time I've felt really healthy in the last couple of years. So, um, I've had some back issues over the last few years, and so that's been kind of a battle, um, and tore my ACL two years ago. So it's actually, you're more statistically likely to win an Olympic gold medal tearing your ACL as a ski racer than, than otherwise. So I guess now maybe I'm on the right side of statistics for that. Um, and then the back surgery, I was just having um, really bad sciatic pain down my leg all last year and wasn't really able to race at the level I wanted to and ended up having to get surgery in January and that was a good move because it gave me a full amount of prep period to get ready and get healthy again. I mean, in ski terms, you're what, you're what 33 years old right yep. now? Um, that's not young. Um, no. Nope. Definitely not. Um, was there a time where you started wondering if it was worth all this comeback, you know, maybe the second injury or, or what was going through your head with that? Ski racing is super fun, and it's the best job out there. <laughs> I so, wish I was good at it, you know? So, no, I never really crossed my mind if I was done or any of that stuff. I was just super motivated to be healthy again and be out there and trying to, to ski fast again. So um, I didn't really have any of those doubts. Of course, like in the middle of summer when you haven't skied for a while and it's still a long road to be able to get back on snow, you're, it's sometimes hard to have that motivation when you're just in the gym and it's hot day out. But... Um, 
you know, it's such a fun job. I always want to get out there. How much time have you spent in Korea? I've spent a little time in Korea. We actually had a race there in 2006, and that was my first World Cup win was on the Olympic Hill there. Um, so I have good good feelings for that hill there. That's a while ago. That's a lot while ago. Yeah, it'll be yeah, it'll be 12 years ago since in the when the Olympics happened. But that's the last time we actually had a race on the Olympic Giant Slalom Hill there. So I guess I'm defending hill champion there too, which is a, a good good thing. And then I've been there a few times for for business with my own company, Shred. Okay, yeah. I mean, I hope uh, I hope all the fans realize that when they come through that you are the defending Korean champion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I mean, that does bring up a point. You know, what in this being in this Olympics being in Korea, um, how is that different in terms of the conditions than other than other places that have, there have been Olympics, there have been World Cups, the Alps, the Rocky Mountains, wherever wherever you know different competitions have been. The hills there are relatively new for a lot of us. Um, like I said, we haven't raced on the Olympic GS hill there in 12 years, and I think I'll probably be the only one that actually raced 12 years ago there and then actually for this Olympics. So that'll be a little bit of an advantage. It's kind of a big gap to, to carry that you know hill knowledge through. Um, and they had a World Cup there the season before last, but I unfortunately had torn my ACL the mm-hmm. week before we were supposed to go there, so I missed that one. But... Um, it's always exciting when it's a new hill. Um, on the World Cup Tour, we ski pretty much the same hills every single year, so you always get a sense of what the hill's like, and you kind of know, you gain more and more knowledge every single year skiing those hills, where these are uh, a little bit more of an unknown, so that makes it a little more interesting. Now, I asked some of the uh, women's hockey players this question, and I feel like it, it, it is legitimately relevant, the food situation in Korea. Are you bringing your own food? Are you going to eat what's there? What's your plan? I actually really like Korean food. Um, okay. I like some bulgogi and kimchi and, you know, knep and all those things are, are good. So actually I enjoy the food in Korea. We actually travel with our own um, mm-hmm. chef over there as well. But it seems like you're going to dip into the, del- the local delicacies while you're there. Yeah, I like to try different foods for sure. <laughs> um, the, in terms of the – well, actually, I'll, I'll go down this route. You know, you are mentioning 2006, you being maybe the only person coming back. If we go all the way back to 2002 – uh, Salt Lake City, where you are, you're from Utah. Yeah. Um, you were 17 at the time, not actually in the Olympics. Uh, but what was your experience like around the competition? I was really lucky, actually, during the 2002 Olympics. I was able to forerun the slalom there. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a foreigner is basically the guinea pig. You go mm-hmm. like test out the track right before the the race starts. And so, you know, I was in the start with all my heroes and um, getting to watch all those guys prepare for the Olympics, and then was able to you know, test dummy the track, and that was a super cool experience, and having the Olympics in my hometown was really neat to be able to, to watch so many different events and seeing, you know, how big of a spectacle it is, and it was really a, a good taste for me. What was the, did they, did any of those Olympians or any of your heroes know who you were? Nobody had any clue who I was, <laughs> you know, as a foreigner, you're, you're nobody, you know, you're just, you're just there. Yeah, but you, I mean, you're page. a rising star, like, do any of the American skiers know this is the guy who's going to take my gold medal in 2006? At that point, I wasn't actually a rising star. I, I, the only reason I got that that spot was because the better kids my age were actually at the World <laughs> Junior Championships. So, um, so I was just kind of there by by luck because I was one of the few people that was just around there that wasn't racing. Well, maybe it was destiny. You, you saw the Olympics <laughs> through before. So by the time yeah. you were there in 2006, you, you, yeah. knew, you knew the ins and outs. Yeah. Um, that Olympics, other than skiing, what were some competitions you took in in Salt Lake City? Um, I watched some hockey there. It was great hockey. It was great hockey. Um, saw a few ski racing events, of course. Um, opening ceremonies I saw. What else did I see? I feel like... What was big? There was this, I remember they swept in uh, Halfpipe, U.S. men's Halfpipe. Yeah, I watched swept. Halfpipe actually as well because that's just right at the base of my mountain there sure. too. So um, saw a lot of, yeah, of course the snow sports um, and hockey. And I don't think I actually made it down to... Um, speed skating or figure skating or any of that stuff. So I was still trying to be a ski racer myself. So I was training a lot then at, at the same time too. Uh, in terms of you know being a winter Olympic athlete, you're especially at a time like this when we're in Times Square. How much pressure do you feel to promote skiing and to promote promote sport? You know the entire competition that doesn't get as much publicity. Um, you know, like you said, during a World Cup season or not during an Olympic season. Yeah, Olympics are definitely a great way to showcase our sport it's um the olympics are so much bigger than just our general world cup schedule it's a great 
opportunity for us to showcase our sport to a much bigger crowd. So, you know, we feel the pressure to, to show what we can do and show how cool ski racing is. I think, you know, ski racing is one of the original extreme sports. Mm-hmm. We're out there going, you know, 100 miles an hour at times with just a, a thin thin piece of lycra over us. So it's a, it's, a, it's a really fun and extreme sport. What country do you go to and you just feel like, like ski racing is their sport? Like this country is just rabid about ski racing. Yeah, Austria and Switzerland are definitely the okay. two places where, you know, ski racing is basically their national sport. Because we were talking, uh, I got an intern, ben, ben Burton is in the house right now. We were talking about this, like in Switzerland, there are, would you say Switzerland takes Roger Federer or its top skiers more seriously? Well, Roger Federer is a huge star. He's so, a big deal. Yeah. But, you know, but, I, I don't so know. a few years ago, it was Didier Kouch, who was a downhill skier from Switzerland, mm-hmm. um, beat Roger Federer for Athlete in, of in the ski. Year in, in Switzerland. Um, and Roger had won Wimbledon and a couple other things that year as well. So it wasn't like he was having a slouch year as well. well maybe that's what lit a fire under Roger's ass, why he's all <laughs> of a sudden had this, had this second win. He needs to be the number one athlete back in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, you were talking about your clothing line before. I want to get this right. It's Shred Optics. Yep. Um, what uh, What do you do with that? So I started Shred in 2006, actually, after the last Olympics, and I really wasn't happy with what was out there. Um, a lot of the, the stuff, the ski equipment in snow sports is really either geared towards specifically ski racing or free ski and snowboard, and I wanted a, a company that was you know, encompass both things, uh, the style side of free ski and snowboarding, but also the technical aspect of ski racing. Um, so we're around for 11 years basically now, and it's been a fun journey. We're making everything from goggles, helmets, and sunglasses and, and protection, protective gear as well. Are you getting feedback from other ski racers or, uh, is it, is it fans that's geared toward who's, who's in taking this? The shred optics. So our customers are people that are skiers and snowboarders. They're you know avid about getting outdoors and pushing their limits. Um, we also have mountain bikers as well. So we have a bunch of professional athletes from free ski and snowboard to ski racing. So we're getting a ton of input on products from all of our athletes, and then also just our general users. We take a lot of input just from our uh, customers as well. What other sports do you do other than ski racing? I mountain bike a lot during the summertime. Um, Don't pull a Madison Bumgarner. Yeah, exactly. happened there. No, what happened to he, him? He's a ba- he's a baseball pitcher. Yeah. He, I must must have been in May. In May, April, he was playing. Uh, they were playing the Colorado Rockies, and on his off day, he was mountain biking. Crashed and missed yeah. what most three of the months. season three months. Yeah, okay, yeah. so don't do that. All right, I'll try you not to. Ski racing career. Yeah, and, and, and speaking <laughs> of that, um, you know, we talk about how how great health you were in. Are you already thinking about a, a 2022 run, or uh, is it just? We'll focus on 2018, and then we'll see where, where life goes. I want to keep ski racing as long as I feel like I can challenge for wins mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. my body feels good. So mm-hmm. I definitely want to ski race for a few more years. I don't know if it's you know 2022. Um, we'll, we'll see. when I'll cross that bridge as I get there. Since the last Olympics, married with kid, yep. will your child be headed to, uh, to, to Korea? My my wife and my kid will be both there, so okay. that'll be cool to have them both at the Olympics with me. Have has have you cha- Do you usually travel with them during during competition, or is this just an Olympic thing? Um, my wife has traveled with me for the last four plus years okay. now, um, and my kid is four months old, so he just um, went on his first trip to Europe this this last week. So um, he's starting to travel. He's not going to come everywhere this year, but he'll be at the Olympics and some of the World Cups as well. So. We're traveling for such a long sense of time that if they didn't travel with me, that would be uh, really tough. Well, and how's he doing? How does he do in high altitudes now? Or already that Park City? Have... Park City is a pretty high altitude, <laughs> so um, he's he's used to it at this point. <laughs> that is that is definitely true. Um, uh, ben, Ben, you're coming over right here right now. I know that you did. He did extensive research into your life yesterday, Ted. So I, I want to give him a chance to ask a question here if there's something on his mind. Yeah, just for the common American fan who may not follow winter sports, um, what up-and-coming skiers or winter athletes should we all be uh, looking forward to in the 2018 Winter Olympics from America? Yeah, so we have some young skiers on our team that are uh, really good up-and-comers. Um, Ryan Cochran Siegel, I think, is one of the young guys. He's part of the famous Cochran family. His um, mom and aunt and uncles all were in the Olympics um, before, and so he's a good guy that's coming up. Um, Tommy Ford, another good young guy as well. So some good skiers. Um, and that's one of the cool things I'm actually doing with Smuckers is they're doing PB and J, PBJ for Team USA. 
um, campaign, giving money to the next generation of um, Olympic athletes and Olympic hopefuls. So, you know, it's cool to be able to support that next generation. Who are you going to watch in South Korea, in Korea, other than just skiers? Um, I'm a big fan of the free ski side of things. Okay. So slope style and, and half pipe is really fun to watch. Um, I know a lot of those guys as well, of course. Um, snowboard as well. Um, trying to think of other sports. I mean, I'm, I'm a hockey fan. It's going to be a little weird not having NHL players in, in the Olympic hockey. Um, Just watch Miracle over and over again, and you'll be, oh, right, this is how hockey used to be. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, definitely I'm very centric on the, on the ski and snowboard side of things. Um, but, like, the long track and short track speed skating is going to be fun to watch as well. Uh, you mentioned the PB&J. You, we got, people can't see it, but we have some great Smuckers products yep. laid out for here. Um, that's what you're promoting. And, you know, it's a big deal, I know, as, as a USOC sponsor yeah. uh, to get something like that. So what's that relationship been like? And for people that might not understand, you know, how important is it to secure a USOC sponsor? It's, you know, that's the way we make our living is through our sponsorships and, mm -hmm. and being able to, um, you know, follow our dreams. We need great partners like people like Smuckers. Um, you know, I grew up as a kid eating PB&Js. My dad would make them for me every day before I would go go to school, but then also, you know, my parents always joked that the mountain was my babysitter, and they'd send my brother and I off with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in our pocket, and we'd go ski around all day. So that was a big part of where I am today is by skiing out there all day and, and having a peanut butter and jelly sandwich as my lunch. So, um, you know, having these sponsorships that, uh, you know, actually hit home is uh, is really neat. I know peanut butter can be confusing for kids. It's Halloween today. You know, they'll have a Reese's yeah. Pieces with the same peanut butter that they'll eat for lunch the next day. I'm just saying that's that's what's great great about it. It's, <laughs> it's dessert and it's lunch. Dessert and lunch. Uh, Ted Ligety, anything before we let you go? Uh, we know you got a big. Obviously, um, you'll be promoting um, the entire Winter Olympics with the hundred days out tomorrow in Times Square um, for Team USA. Uh, anything else going on with you? I'm just excited to be racing this year. It's uh, it's always a fun one during the Olympics, and also. I'm just excited to be healthy again, so looking forward to it all. Healthy is good. We're glad yep. you're healthy. Ted Ligety stopping by the Post Game Podcast. Thanks for listening. Remember to follow the Post Game at the Post Game on Facebook and Twitter at the underscore post underscore game on Instagram, and you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jeff Eisenbaum.